In January of the year 897, Pope Stephen VI ordered that the body of one of his predecessors, Pope Formosus, be dug up and clothed in the vesture of a pope and set in a chair in the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. And a trial was held, conducted by a synod, and understandably the synod has been called the Cadaver Synod. Formosus, being unable to speak in his own defense, was represented by a deacon whose arguments, it is said, lacked persuasion. And in the end, the body of Formosus was condemned. He was literally defrocked. His papal vestments were torn off of his body. And in the months that followed, Pope Stephen VI, who had instigated all of this, was captured by his enemies, imprisoned, and strangled to death. His successor was pope for only two months. The next pope after that was pope for only 20 days, but he did occupy the office of the papacy long enough to bring the body of Formosus back to its original tomb in Rome, clothed in its papal garb and placed in there with solemn ceremonies. Now this bizarre history gives us a snapshot into the great decay and the great wickedness and therefore also the great weirdness of the time. 897 was the end of the 9th century. Church historian Philip Schaff described the 10th century as the darkest of the dark ages, a century of crime and superstition and anarchy in church and state. When things get wicked, things get weird. And in that, it is not too dissimilar from our text tonight in Judges 19. And unfortunately, not too dissimilar from the times in which we live. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. A writer writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem and Judah, but this concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem, in Judah, and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband rose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. 
Spend the night here and let your heart be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. But the man was not willing to spend the night. And so he arose and departed, and they came to a place opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys, his concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. He said to his servants, Come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way until... And the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They l- turned aside there in order to, sp- to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, But the men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? He said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. For I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem and Judah, but now I am going to my house, and no one will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace to you, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went to them and said to them, No, my fellows, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out to you, that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. And then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up and let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. 
Now, this chapter that we have just read bears all the marks of civil and religious decay. The atrocities of which we read here in chapter 19 then are are part of a unit, which begins here in 19 and extends through the end of the book. Next, following in chapter 20, is the punishment that is rendered by the tribes of the Israelites upon the tribe of Benjamin for what happened here in Gibeah and for their defense of the Gibeonites, not... uh, the, the Benjaminites not rendering them up to the rest of Israel. And then what follows after that in chapter 21 is the pity of the Israelites upon the tribe of Benjamin because they had almost annihilated the entire tribe. And therefore they were worried about this tribe that was nearly cut off from the nation. Again, as we've, as we've been seeing in these closing chapters of the book of Judges, this is the kind of thing that takes place, as verse 1 points out, in those days when there was no king in the land. And judging from the little bit of evidence that we find in chapter 20, these events actually take place not long after the Israelites entered the land under Joshua. And so we don't have a precise date, but chapter 20, verse 28, gives us a a rough idea in that it tells us who was the high priest at that time. It was Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron who was the high priest at this time. And this is the same Phinehas who was was functioning as a priest in the late wilderness years and who was with the Israelites when they crossed into the promised land under Joshua. This was the Phinehas who distinguished himself for zeal in Numbers chapter 24 during the immoralities that were taking place at the instigation of Balaam when the Israelites had joined themselves to, to Baal of Peor, if you remember that incident there in Numbers chapter 24. And so... In other words, these events here happen within the span of Phineas's lifetime. And we don't have any idea how old Phineas was when these things happened, but the point is that this demonstrates that these wicked events happened within the lifetime of at least some of those who came into the land with Joshua. The text before us is one in which wickedness abounds and no one emerges from this chapter as a righteous figure. The situation is a mess from any angle at which you choose to look at it. So first we're told about this Levite who took a concubine. Now what is a concubine? A concubine is a second and second class wife, you might say. So she shares the bed of her husband but does not partake of all of the rights and privileges of the first wife or of a full wife. Suffice it to say that this is not the kind of arrangement that God intended. It was not this way from the beginning. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Brunhilde, or insert another name. God's intent was for marriage to be between one man and one woman. And this whole business of polygamy or concubinage is contrary to the creation ordinance of marriage. And on a more practical note, it's just a bad idea. As a general rule, when we are given much information at all about polygamous relationships that existed in the Bible, the picture is not pretty. How did the, uh, the Oak Ridge boys put it? Trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. It's ugly. It's not just a ball and chain to the man. Family dynamics as a whole are a mess. Just look at the picture. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. How did that work out? Look at the picture of Jacob. Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, Zilpah. How did that work out? Look at Elkanah and Hannah and Penina. Elkanah and Hannah being the parents of Samuel. This is is bad stuff. 
And just to give a more contemporary example, our missionary Steve King, uh, who's serving in the Ivory Coast, was once asked by a man of the Ivory Coast why he didn't have two wives. And as Steve was, was talking with this man, and part of his response, Steve asked this polygamous man if he had peace in his home. And the man got it. And he acknowledged that Steve was a very wise man for not giving way to polygamy. And so that's the, that's the first thing. This Levite has a concubine. That's verse 1. Then comes verse 2. But his concubine played the harlot against him. And she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. Now, the text doesn't elaborate with specificity as to precisely how she played the harlot. It's possible that what is in view here is straight-up adultery, after which she runs away to her father's house. Or it's potentially possible that they had a lover's quarrel of sorts, couldn't get along, and so she just went back to daddy's house. The the Targum, which was kind of the ancient amplified Bible of sorts, uh, had in uh, in its uh, uh, rendering of this text that she despised him. Instead of playing the harlot, it rendered it that she had despised him. And so, one way or the other, this is, this is not good. Immorality is wicked, as is spouses separating from one another in marital strife. And on top of that, her dad lets her come back home and stay there for four months. This would be understandable if she were the one who had been sinned against or had suffered wrong at the hands of her husband. Say, if her husband had abused her or had committed adultery against her. But this is not what happened. She played the harlot against her husband, and her father let her come back home. At the very least, he was aiding and abetting bad behavior. Maybe he was, maybe he was trying to help mend the cracks, and it seems like he was, was very eager to help them mend the relationship when his son-in-law showed up. But, but nevertheless, uh, these first two verses paint a very bad picture for us, and as we know, it only gets worse. So this Levite comes back to his father-in-law's house, tries to speak tenderly to his concubine to bring her back with him. And so, as we said, her fa- his father-in-law is happy to see him, entertains him for a few days, and then it's like he just can't get away. After three days of being there, he gets up early on the fourth day, ready to go. His father-in-law invites him, hey, stay around, eat a little bit, and then you can go. He stays around, eats a little bit. His father-in-law says, hey, it's too late to take off today. Stay around, eat a little more, stay the night and then you can go. And then the fifth day starts out the same way. He says, stick around and eat. So they eat in the morning, and then uh, that delays the early start. Afternoon comes, the Levite is ready to go, but the father-in-law pulls the same card as the day before. He says, it's already late, stay over tonight, you can be on your way first thing in the morning. Does anybody see any repetition here? It makes you wonder how long this would have gone on if that Levite had kept on sticking around. It reminds me of the time when, when I was back in seminary and I was working nights for UPS. And then on the side, I was doing uh, some yard work and various odds and ends. And there was one year where it was probably March or April, and I'd worked a, a Friday night shift at UPS and got off at probably 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd had breakfast at a, at a steak and shake or someplace like that. And then I went to, to work for this couple that I would do work for periodically, and I was going to try to get their yard uh, ready for, for spring. And as the day wore on and morning turned to afternoon, it seemed that the to-do list just, just kept, on, kept on getting longer. The lady would say, Neil, if you have the strength, could you do this? Neil, if you have the strength, could, could you do that? And finally, her husband said to her, Neil is tired. He's been working all night and he's ready to go home. And you keep on asking him to do one more thing. The Levite, it seems, was ready to go home. And 
And so he goes home, his father-in-law's offer notwithstanding. He leaves for home with his concubine and his servant late in the day, and it is this late departure from Bethlehem to the hill country of Ephraim that sets into motion this string of events that culminates not only in the death and dismemberment of the concubine, but in the civil war that takes place then in Israel and then the near annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. The late departure means that they won't have enough daylight to get home, so they'll need a place to stay somewhere along the way. And the odd thing is, as they come to, to Jebus or to Jerusalem, which at that time is under the control of the Jebusites, and the servant is ready to, to hang it up for the night, right? The sun is sun's near setting, let's, let's call it quits, let's stay here. The Levite, on the other hand, seems to have a healthy, healthy recognition, in a sense, that these people are not Israelites, and therefore we ought not to stay with them. And the Jebusites were, in fact, one of the, one of the seven nations, the Canaanites, who were, who were under the ban, whom they were uh, commissioned by God to, uh, to kill in, uh, in the conquest of the Promised Land. And so this Levite has some genuinely correct sense about him here that something's not right for us to, to lodge with these people. They're not of the sons of Israel. Let's, let's press on so we can stay with our own people. But how little did he know that events would prove that probably he and his would have actually been safer among the Canaanites than they were among the sons of Israel. So they go to Gibeah, hoping for some hospitality from the locals, and they find none until this old man, who is himself a sojourner among the Benjaminites, comes in from the field. This man is from the hill country of Ephraim, same general vicinity that they are from, and he's the one who receives these travelers into his home. And now, for those who are familiar with the biblical narrative of the Old Testament, this text is shaping up to look a whole lot like Genesis 19, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have strangers coming into a town. In Genesis 19, it was the angels. Here, it's this Levite, his concubine, and his servant. And then you have a sojourner in the town who invites them into his home. And so this old man here in Judges 19 is, is in a way, recapitulating the role of Lot in extending this hospitality. Lot was not a native of Sodom and Gomorrah. He himself went there. You remember the men of Sodom and Gomorrah's, uh, uh, their upsetness at him, and they said, this, this man came here among us as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. They recognized that, that Lot was an outsider. Same's going on here with this old man in Gibeah who was actually from the hill country of Ephraim. And so there's a whole lot going on here that is similar to, to Genesis 19 as it was in Sodom, so it was in Gibeah. And this is intentional on the part of our author. He is, he's trying to show us something here. And of course, this similarity continues. There in the night comes the crowd of evildoers. The men of Gibeah wanted the same thing that the men of Sodom wanted. They wanted to know the stranger, to know him, that is, sexually. And again, the host plays the role of Lot. He tries to dissuade the crowd and offers them women upon whom they could gratify their lust. Lot did the same thing. He offered them his two virgin daughters. And unfortunately, this Levite and his servant are not angels who can strike the crowd with blindness so as to stop them from their wicked designs. And so the men of Gibeah take the concubine and abuse her. 
There's no need for graphic explanation or description at this point. We understand what is going on here. This woman, this woman was abused and ultimately died from the abuse that she received. Now, the men of Gibeah were wicked in what they did, and nothing can erase or belittle the wickedness of their deeds. But notice here also the wicked failure of both her host, this old man from the hill country of Ephraim, and her husband, the Levite. They did nothing to help her. In fact, they were the ones who put her in that situation to begin with. Now, if you think back to the law in Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27, we we read this. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. Now, obviously, the the specific laws there in Deuteronomy 22, of those two, neither one deal specifically and entirely with the situation that is identical to what's going on here in Judges 19. But nevertheless, there are some principles and expectations and assumptions that are made there in the law in Deuteronomy 22 that are worth observing. The law assumed that in the case of a rape, a girl would cry out whether she was in the country or in the city. The law assumed that if she cried out in the countryside, there would be no one to hear her, and so she would not be culpable for what took place. The law assumed that in the city, a godly woman would cry out, and it also made the assumption that if she did, there would be people there to hear her and come to her aid to stop the wickedness that was about to take place. Now, I can't tell you how this concubine responded beyond uh, what we see here in the text, but what I can say is that in a town like Gibeah, given all that we are told about it, it wouldn't have mattered if she did cry out. The end result would have been the same. No one was going to come to her rescue. And what is worse is that those who were most responsible for her, for her well-being, her husband and her host in that culture, were the ones who bore responsibility for her. They were the ones who actually handed her over to this crowd. Her husband refused to stick out his neck and keep her safe. And so when the morning comes, he's ready to head on home. He sees her lying there. He says, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. Now the text doesn't tell us explicitly uh, that she had died. Maybe she had died that night. Maybe she died on the ride home on the donkey. We don't know. But her dead body was, uh, was taken back to the hill country of Ephraim. She's cut up limb by limb and sent out to the tribes to give notice of this atrocity. Now, what's this all about? Again, when things get wicked, things get weird. John Gill commented that the Levite did this not out of disrespect to his wife, but to express the vehement passion he was in on account of her death in the way it was and to raise their indignation at the perpetrators of it. In a similar vein, Matthew Poole wrote, this might seem to be a barbarous and inhuman act in itself, 
but may seem excusable if it be considered that the sadness of the spectacle did contribute highly to stir up the zeal of all the Israelites to avenge his concubine's death and to execute justice upon such profligate offenders and was necessary, especially in this time of anarchy and general corruption, to awaken them out of that lethargy in which all the tribes lay. Now it may be true that he meant no disrespect toward his concubine, but we can hardly say that his actions were respectful toward the treatment of her corpse. Now it's one thing for us later to find in the book of 1 Samuel that Saul cuts up his oxen and sends them out to the tribes of Israel to to stir them up to go out and rescue the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the hands of the Ammonite, but it's a very different thing for a Levite to do this to his dead concubine. And likewise, maybe something extremely grotesque like this was necessary in order to rouse the tribes to to take action and nothing short of a bloody body part would make them think, wow, something really is wrong here and we need to, to get up and show up and take action. But still, even if these things may be granted, there's something that is very off, something that is very weird about this whole situation. Chopping up a corpse is no way of demonstrating anger. Likewise, it should not take a chopped up corpse to rouse us to pay attention to a particular situation so as to see that something needs to be done about it. Indeed, there's something off about this entire chapter. Wickedness pervades it all throughout. This chapter is about concubinage, unfaithfulness, the homosexual desire of a mob of Israelites that looks like Sodom, the gang rape of a woman, and a man who stood by and let it happen, only to later show his rage by chopping up the woman's body. There's something off about the whole chapter. And that, my friends, is the point. There's something off in regard to just about everything in Israel at this point in time. There's no king in the land. Everyone is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. And this is what happens in a time of civil and religious decline. Disastrous things happen. And this sad chapter shows us why we need both good civil government and the fear of God as well. Because when these things are lacking, this is what you're left with. As it is intended by God, the civil government is to be a detriment toward evil and evildoers. So we read in Romans 13, 4 and 5, that rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The civil government, as intended by God, is to be a restraining force against evil. And when government declines, so does its restraining force. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Now we live, unfortunately, in a time and a place where not only are sentences against evil deeds not executed quickly, but sometimes evil deeds are not punished at all. Indeed, sometimes evil deeds are countenanced and supported by the powers that be. We live in a time and place where homosexuality and sexual confusion are not only tolerated but coddled by the government and by society. Is there anyone really surprised, if you're watching the news, is anyone really surprised 
about the reports coming out of Loudoun County, Virginia, that allegedly a boy claiming to be trans and wearing a skirt assaulted a girl in the school bathroom back in May, and after investigation, a 14-year-old male was arrested in July on suspicion of two counts of forcible sodomy. And then, at least according to reports, the same boy was released from the juvenile detention center, transferred to another school, and reports are that as of October 6th, he forced a girl into an empty classroom, inappropriately touched her, that he was charged with sexual battery, and taken to Loudoun County Juvenile Detention Center. Now let me ask you, this is shocking, but let me ask you really, is anyone who is in their right mind surprised at this kind of thing? When there's no fear of God and when the civil government is not being particularly helpful in these regards, is anyone surprised? You ought not be. Or can we be surprised at the reports coming out of Philadelphia just this week where a woman was raped on a commuter train while the surveillance video captured the assault and showed other passengers who witnessed the assault who did nothing, didn't even call 911 to help the woman. Upper Darby uh, Police Superintendent Timothy Bernhard said, it's disturbing. I'm shocked. I have no words for it. I just can't imagine seeing what you're seeing through your own eyes and seeing what this woman was go through, and no one would step in and help her. Brothers and sisters, I can only say that we'd better be familiar with a text like Judges 19 and like Genesis 19 and see what life is like in places of horrendous wickedness and ponder how to live there according to the will of God in such a place. Because but for the grace of God, this is where our society is going. And in some respects, we're already there. Let the reader of these texts understand we're headed there, or we are there. And in pondering the wickedness of the world, both then and now, allow this to stir you up in a longing for home. Let the wickedness of this world remind you just how wicked sin really is, and how good it is to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ. How wonderful it is to know that we belong elsewhere, and praise be to God, we are going elsewhere. Peter reminds us, 2 Peter 3.13, that according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This kind of stuff won't happen there. And we're, we're going there. And so let's fix our hope there and long for it. And as we journey out of Sodom or out of Gibeah toward the new Jerusalem, let's try to take others with us. Let's show them the deliverance from this wickedness and from the mess that is found only in Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Let's praise God that we don't have to live like this because we have a king who's told us how to live. We have a king who has delivered us from all of this and given us new hearts and new lives. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for deliverance from wickedness. Lord, we understand in some measure the wickedness of this text and the wickedness of the world in which we live, Lord, we ask that you would stir us up to long 
for the salvation of those who would perpetrate such crimes and for those who are violated in these ways. Lord, we ask that you would help us to long for Christ to come. Let us say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.